Historical revisionism is a continuous act, as new discoveries of evidence inevitably alter the previously held viewpoint. Oftentimes, however, it isn't an act of discovery that results in the reinvention of our history, but rather a reversal of older moral judgments. Dan Carlin, the host of Hardcore History, discusses this within his Genghis Khan series, tangentially offering his listeners a million-dollar book idea. It's a concept that he intelligently won't touch himself. The idea is to write a book about all of the good that came about as a result of the Holocaust. His statement is, of course, designed to elicit shock and outrage, but he reassures his audience that that book will one day be written. That day, thankfully, happens to be far in the future, as two things need to happen. First, we need to be able to look at the chain of causality that resulted in major inventions. For instance, we know that the Manhattan Project took up its work as a direct response to Hitler's actions. That project resulted in the nuclear bomb, as well as the technology that ushered in an age powered by nuclear energy. Head down the road a little farther into the future, and you get to nuclear fusion, which may be the answer to our planet's quest for endless clean energy. There were other benefits that came about because of the horrific violence in World War II. The liberal world order and the formation of the nation-state of Israel are considered by the majority of the Western world as positive spillover effects from World War II. None of these benefits, however, excuse the sheer magnitude of the violence meted out against Hitler's enemies. But we largely feel that way because we know the victims. Anne Frank has a story that we are all familiar with. Rather than a historical statistic, she was a person whom we all felt like we knew. The generation of Holocaust survivors is unfortunately passing from this earth. In 2022, the average age of survivors living in Israel was 85. They have done a remarkable job documenting their experience so that the world never forgets the evil that came beneath the Nazi banners. Many of these critical memoirs start out in a similar fashion, with the author incredibly apologizing to the reader for documenting their story. They note the importance of ensuring that their story is preserved, while hoping that by finally telling their story, they can let it go once and for all. In short, they are hoping to finally achieve a state of peace. Unfortunately, they may have unwittingly passed their trauma on to their children. A 2015 study found that Jewish men and women who had either been interned within a Nazi concentration camp witnessed or experienced torture resulted in literal genetic changes that were passed on to their children. The result was an increase in the likelihood of stress disorders. This inherited trauma, or epigenic inheritance, is the clearest sign yet that the Holocaust created permanent change within our world. Yet hundreds, perhaps thousands of years from now, the individual stories and names will start to run together. This is the point where historical revisionists sense an opportunity to look at an era with a different perspective. 
one that lumps the victim's stories into statistics, allowing them to think like Joseph Stalin, who told us that a single death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. That is what has come to pass with regards to the Mongols. The stories of Genghis Khan's brutality are on similar levels to the Nazis. Ice cores from the Arctic have scientifically confirmed that the Khan killed so many people that planetary climate change was temporarily reversed. Each of those individuals snuffed out by the Mongol warlord would have had loved ones. They would have lived within fear of being the next victim of the wrath of the Khan. Their trauma may have even been passed down generationally. Yet today we have a number of historical revisionists reassessing the actions of the Mongols. Rather than people we could relate to, the victims of the Khans have merged together into a numerical blob. Dozens killed here, a thousand there. Those commodified numbers are then weighed against the positives created in the wake of the Mongol conquests. They connected the East and West together via the Silk Road. They expanded freedom of religion throughout the Eastern Hemisphere. And they promoted science and engineering to such a degree that the world was ushered into the Age of Discovery. Heck, the fact that men and women wear pants can be directly attributed to the Mongols. Historian Jack Weatherford is on the front line of this reinvention of our understanding regarding the Mongols. Weatherford is a distinguished professor at a university in Minnesota. He has earned his PhD and his credentials as a bona fide historian. He is the author of eight published books, three of which relate to the Khan. Weatherford does the hard work necessary to get to his ultimate act of revision, meaning that his conclusions are absolutely legitimate, so long as one minimizes the suffering of the Khan's victims, individuals whom will never know their tragic backstories. This is in contrast to historical negationism, which seeks out revision but utilizes illegitimate academic means, such as manipulating an author's intent or fabricating a document in order to reach their conclusion. Holocaust deniers are an example of that dreaded branch of revisionism. Although I can see Weatherford's point of view, my students scoff at the fact that this American professor has received multiple honorary degrees from Mongolian colleges. Rather than tainting his work, these awards simply show that the people of Mongolia greatly appreciate a historian whose work matches their own opinion, even if that opinion isn't shared by the rest of the world. It's one thing for Weatherford to reduce the victims of the Mongols to mere statistics. He has no genetic ties to that area. There is no generational trauma from these events inflicted upon his family. It is another thing, however, for someone personally witnessing the atrocities to have ignored the Mongols' violent excesses. Marco Polo was Europe's first-hand witness to the violent and gory works of Kublai Khan, the historical successor to the great Khan's fame, 
instead of documenting the man's cruelty, he became the first Western apologist for the ruler of China. He chose to introduce Kublai to the West as the Lord of Lords and the most powerful man in people and in lands and in treasure that ever was in the world. Thus, the first European study of the Khan's China is one that fits with today's penchant for revisionism rather than an orthodox viewpoint. In that way, perhaps Weatherford should be known as a traditionalist. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon the intertwined legacies of Venetian explorer Marco Polo and the Chinese emperor Kublai Khan. Episode number three, A Luxurious Life of Servitude. Kublai Khan was a worthy successor to his grandfather, Genghis Khan. He expanded the Mongol Empire to its largest extent by finishing off the conquest of China, which alone resulted in the deaths of an estimated 18 million. He entrenched Mongol control over the Korean Peninsula and throughout Southeast Asia while establishing a caste system in China. Marco Polo discusses the many achievements of Kublai Khan, including his successes in battle, his ability to put down rebellions, his great palaces, and many riches. The leader of Yan China is described as a great and powerful ruler, but also one who cared deeply about his subjects, a man who donated generously through his charity and almsgiving to the poor, as well as his fair treatment of his subordinates. In fact, searching for information regarding the violence that was meted out beneath his rule is exceedingly difficult to find, despite the fact that he launched multiple failed invasions into Vietnam and Japan. The historical record for each conflict is strikingly devoid of the violent details that come from the other Khans, such as the infamous legend that Genghis ordered the deaths of 1.75 million all of whom were dispatched within the span of one hour in the city of Nishapur. We have circumstantial evidence that Kublai Khan wasn't adverse to violence, as his legal code included the punishment of death by 120 cuts for treason. In his own work, Marco details his travels to Tibet, where he says he couldn't find a suitable place to sleep for 20 days. Although he doesn't expressly say it, the reason for a lack of housing was that the Khan had destroyed large portions of the country. The lack of details regarding the Khan's violence led one honors thesis paper to state that Kublai Khan's reign is rendered magnificent by such historians as Peter Brent, Richard Lister, James Boyle, Bertod Spuler, and W.W. Barthold. His extravagant palace and grounds and his rich taste is illustrated by Samuel Taylor Coleridge in the poem Kublai Khan. But one thing such renowned historians and poets fail to mention 
is how he became magnificent. They cite his social welfare programs, his civil way of handling the enemy, and his tolerance for foreign peoples in his realm. But they do not tell how he was motivated. The immense scale of his conquests suggests that he didn't shy away from ambition nor violence. So why does he continually get a free pass, becoming the example of a civilized barbarian? I would argue that it's because of our accidental Venetian explorer, Marco Polo. We know that Marco was offered up by his dad as a worker for the emperor during that initial meeting. We don't know why Kublai Khan took him up on it. The city that became Beijing was under construction when Marco entered what would be 17 years worth of service. His detailed descriptions of the city, however, are rendered mostly worthless, as only the White Pagoda Temple remains standing today. Certainly, the 21 million residents of Beijing couldn't all fit within the geographical boundary of Kublai's winter capital which was determined by means of the ancient Mongol practice of the leader firing arrows from a stationary location to the four points of the compass. He referred to his dynasty as the Yon, which meant first, or origin. It was another attempt to rewrite Chinese history so that it would seem normal to be governed by those whom you had originally built a great wall to keep out. Historian Stephen Kotcher tells us that Yawn is the ultimate source, the prima mobile, the movement behind the absolute origin of the universe, it is the power of spring and of the east. As well as implying primacy, it also suggests the concepts of eldest and the source of thought and growth. It signifies the good man and a connection with fundamental truths. It is linked to ideas of fundamental rituals, greatness, and founding acts. As the ultimate sign of Mongolian victory, capitalist China's currency today remains the yawn. Marco's first assigned role was to act as a messenger, and thus a lot of his book, The Travels, is a description of the Khan's kingdom. But it wasn't his only job. Historian John Mann describes his role as a sort of reporter-at-large, informer, even perhaps a spy, possibly being asked to pay special attention to foreign merchants. As a result, he was continually coming and going on the missions that were entrusted to him by the Lord, returning with eyewitness reports, in Mongol presumably, that delighted Kublai. He fulfilled his role with spectacular success, guaranteeing himself a special status that aroused some envy among Kublai's other retainers. Eventually, the European page transitioned to become a high-level bureaucrat governing his own city. But that role, like most of Marco's claims, remains in dispute, as there is no record of a polo among the historical roles of Chinese governors. While the Venetian is reportedly described as a close confidant of the Khan, he never seemed to remain at the ruler's side for long periods of time. 
For instance, Marco claims to have been a part of the 1277 conquest of Myanmar. Mann is among the historians who questions whether that was fact or hyperbole, pointing out that Marco's description of a battle between 10,000 Mongols and 200 Burmese war elephants feels a bit far-fetched. The Venetian described the engagement to his readers by writing, Understand that when the elephants felt the smart of those arrows that pelted them like rain, they turned tail and fled. And another on earth would have induced them to turn and face the Mongols. So for they sped with such a noise and uproar that you would have thought the world was coming to an end. And then too they plunged into the wood and rushed this way and that, dashing their castles against the trees, bursting their harness, smashing and destroying everything that was on them and everything in their path, including the unfortunate Burmese infantry. Despite having claimed to see the land of pagodas, Marco continues to either disregard Buddhism completely, or when it becomes impossible to ignore, casts the religion in a negative light. His hatred of idol worshippers, as he referred to them, makes it clear that he maintained his Christian sensibilities. It also showcases the differences in what Marco chooses to describe. He ignored some of the great wonders of the ancient world, but wrote at length about the sheep of the Himalayas as well as the Lugao Bridge. His descriptions were so detailed for both of those that locals renamed the sheep and bridge after our intrepid explorer. Meanwhile, Vietnam didn't think twice regarding their refusal to name a single thing after the European visitor, as Marco's description, in its totality, amounts to calling them idol worshippers, describing a king who had 300 wives, and the inclusion of the fact that most of the land's residents were tattooed. In 1284, Marco Polo was dispatched to Sri Lanka, an island nation off the southern coast of India. Kublai, like his grandfather, oversaw a cosmopolitan nation, utilizing men from Mongolia, China, and the Middle East as he saw fit. Why did he imagine Marco Polo suited to the job of ambassador for the ruler of China to Sri Lanka? The historical record, unfortunately, doesn't provide a clear-cut answer to that question. Perhaps it was simply the fact that Venice and Sri Lanka were both overly reliant upon sea trade. Historian Ananda Abedira thinks that it's even simpler than that, suggesting that the unique trait that Marco Polo brought to the Khan's table was his profound ability to describe his surroundings. The historian supports his hypothesis with Marco's own words, which claim that the great Khan would say, I had far livelier hearken about the strange things and the manners of the different countries you have seen than merely be told of the business you went upon, for he took great delight in hearing of the affairs of strange countries. In other words, he served as the emperor's eyes and ears, Seeking to remain useful to the Khan, Marco regularly went to great lengths to uncover interesting tidbits about all kinds of different matters in the countries which he visited. 
As such, descriptions of exotic animals leap off the pages, but they don't always match up with a modern-day understanding of Asia's fantastic beasts. His description of a unicorn matches up perfectly with what you know to be rhinos. He can't hide his disappointment as he describes the unicorn as a creature with hair like a buffalo, feet like an elephant, and a horn in the middle of its forehead, which is black and very thick, telling his readers that they delight much in mire and mud before rendering the verdict that tis a passing ugly beast. They weren't the only animal that confused him, as the lions that he documented had the stripes of tigers. Dr. Matthew Sharp, writing for Psychology Today, is fascinated by the obvious mistakes within Marco's work, wondering aloud how you get from the Indian rhinoceros and the sable antelope to the myth of a horny horse laying its head in the lap of a virgin while angry villagers race up and beat it to death in a manner reminiscent of a chimpanzee troop enthusiastically murdering My Little Pony, I don't know. I suspect this myth tells us more about the psychology of the storytellers than it does about the rhinoceros or the antelope. Sharp then proceeds to point out that under stress, our visual perception dramatically declines reminding us that even great explorers have human nervous systems. And those systems can be deceived by prior frameworks for expectation and by inaccurate, over-inclusive language. While this is known to science, the criminal justice system still regularly puts its trust and emphasis on eyewitness accounts to crimes which occur within the most stressful of situations. Progress with DNA evidence has even exonerated individuals who were convicted based upon eyewitness testimony. To psychologists such as Sharp, the eyewitness wasn't lying to the jury. Instead, they had been deceived by their own eyes. The issue is profound within the American justice system, as the Innocence Project documents the fact that more than 60% of their clients were wrongfully convicted based upon evidence from eyewitnesses. Marco's descriptions, accurate or not, thrilled the Khan as well as modern-day readers. In his section on Sri Lanka, Marco points to the natives' near-nakedness as a sign that they were heathens. Attempting true scholarship, Marco recorded their retort to his suggestion that their decision to go all-natural was a sin, as the elder explained to him that, We go naked because naked we came into this world, and we desire to have nothing about us that is of this world. Moreover, we have no sin of the flesh to be conscious of, and therefore we are not ashamed of our nakedness, any more than you are to show your hand or your face." You who are conscious of the sins of the flesh do well to have shame and to cover your nakedness. For the Christian Marco Polo, it must have seemed as though the Sri Lankan people hadn't partaken in Eve's eating of the apple. Rather than heathens, however, perhaps he should have wondered whether he had discovered a group of people who had avoided his faith's original sin.
another of the magnificent sights that would have been rendered commonplace upon repeated viewings was the restored Grand Canal of China. Built by the Swede dynasty of the 7th century, the waterworks project served to link together the northern and southern portions of China. Connecting the two main rivers, the creation of the canal was a colossal undertaking. Stretching more than 1,000 miles, it remains to this day the world's largest constructed waterway. It took a full six years of back-breaking labor to finish just the first of the seven segments of the project. The canal was one of those undertakings that only China seemed capable of completing as it took millions of laborers, most of whom had absolutely no choice in the matter. Many of those that began the enterprise never saw its completion, as it is believed that half of all of the forced laborers died in order to make the emperor's vision become reality. The UNESCO World Heritage designation tells us that it was one of the most extensive civil engineering projects prior to the Industrial Revolution, forming the backbone of the empire's inland communication system, transporting grain and strategic raw materials, and supplying rice to feed the population. Today, it continues to play an important role in ensuring China's economic prosperity and stability. Kublai Khan later expanded and straightened the Grand Canal in order to connect the critical waterway to Beijing. His section took another dozen years to complete, beginning eight years after Marco's arrival to court. A modern-day economic engine, small towns along the river quickly emerged and prospered along the thoroughfare. Having traversed the canal regularly, the Venetian would go on to identify 26 towns along the canal by name. Although it traversed more than 2,000 kilometers, a journey to the canal's end was worth it. For at the southernmost point of the waterway was the city of heaven, Hangzhou, the capital of what had been Song, China. Marco devotes a great deal to this city, but the numbers that he cites are pure works of fiction. For instance, he claims that there were 12,000 bridges within the metropolis, each tall enough for ships to pass beneath, yet low enough for carts and horses to pass over with ease. A modern-day look at the city suggests that the actual number of bridges in the medieval version of the city was merely 347. But bridges weren't the only number absurdly exaggerated, as he claimed that the city was divided into 12 guilds, each with 12,000 houses that contained 12 people. In case you were wondering, yes, 12 is a lucky number within Chinese culture, representing the Taoist belief in harmony through both the yin and yang. Altogether, Marco Polo makes mention of 70 locations in Asia, only four of which lack verified information that serves to collaborate his tale. Even if he truly did visit all of the sites, the traveler remains horrendously guilty of exaggeration. Mann informs us that if he had visited all of the places that he claims to have, he would have covered an incredible 14,000 kilometers as the crow flies. Double it for twists and turns, bad weather and illness, 
and the historian concludes that Marco would have had to have been continuously on the move 24-7 for five consecutive years out of the 17 he spent in China. But all good things come to an end. In 1292, Marco, his father, and his uncle finally decided that it was time to return home. John Mann believes that the impetus for the departure was the death of Marco's wife. The historian makes some gigantic historical leaps to reach this conclusion. Mann knows that Marco fancied women. He also knows that the Venetians suddenly left after having lived exactly half of his life in China. He would have had a stable job that he loved, and one which had placed him within an exalted position in the Chinese court. People don't typically just uproot themselves at that point in their life, unless it's for love or loss. The historian admits that evidence for his theory is purely indirect, as there is never any mention within Marco's work of having obtained a spouse. Instead, the story of his wife came out of a conversation with the descendants of Marco, who claimed to have personally passed the detail down orally for the past 700 years. I teach high schoolers, meaning that I fully expect any confidential secret to be held onto for no longer than seven seconds. Surprisingly, science has looked into the concept of keeping secrets. Psychologist Michael Sleepian has found that the act of keeping a secret can impair one's mental health. The key to preventing the secret from slipping or damaging one's health is to stay active, as the respondents in his study reported thinking about their skeletons in the closet twice as much when they were alone than within a group. Still, it is possible that the family could maintain Marco's dirty little secret by keeping it contained within the immediate family. Physicist David Robert Grimes has found that each individual has a 1 in 250,000 chance of either accidentally or purposefully blurting out a secret. While that seems like a lot, a quarter of a million is just a small fraction of the daily interactions we have with family, neighbors, colleagues, and strangers. The larger the conspiracy, the more likely it is to be discovered. Grimes informs us that if you want to keep things a secret for five years, have less than 2,531 people in on the plot. If you're shooting for a decade, 1,257 is the largest you can go. And if you want a conspiracy that lasts a century or more, like the Da Vinci Code, then you need to keep your numbers really small down to 125 people. There is additional evidence which throws further doubt on the authenticity of the family's tale, as his wife's name was supposedly Mi Lai, which was a generic Chinese term for beautiful girl. Marco's last will and testament offers up the only corroborating evidence as one of the only items Marco had held on to from his journey was a hat, which man wonders if it was a sentimental parting gift from a loved one. It is far more likely that the Polo's exodus came from their shared realization that the great Khan wasn't destined to live forever. 
Kublai Khan resided on our Earth for 78 years, significantly longer than the vast majority of his Mongolian peers who were quite prone to alcoholism due to the fact that culturally they proved their manhood by drinking copious amounts of alcohol. That was perfectly fine when the only thing available to them was fermented mare's milk, but access to Russian vodkas and Italian wines had made that practice deadly. Genghis Khan saw what was happening to his family and told followers that when a man gets drunk on wine and rice wine, he is just like a blind man who can't see anything, a deaf man who can't hear when he's called, and a mute who can't reply when he's spoken to. If one must drink, then let one drink thrice a month, for more is bad. If one gets drunk twice a month, it is better. If one gets drunk once a month, that is even better. And if one doesn't drink at all, that is the best for all. Alas, his son Ogadai didn't take the advice and died an early death due to his rampant alcoholism. Although he lived for the better part of seven decades, Kublai also failed to heed his exalted ancestors' advice. For Marco describes the great urn that the Khan drank from in quite a bit of detail, writing, and in the middle of this great hall where Kublai keeps his table is a most beautiful structure, large and rich, made in the manner of a square chest. And each side is of three paces, cunningly worked with very beautiful carvings of gilded animals. And in the middle it is hollowed out, and there is a great and valuable vessel in the shape of a great pitcher of fine gold, which holds quite as much wine as a common large butt of six barrels, or of six salme, and it is full of wine or some other good drink. And round the foot of this pitcher that is in each corner of this chest is a smaller one of silver, of the capacity of a grape tub, full of good spiced drinks, very fine and of great value, in one of which is mare's milk, and in another camels, and so with the others according as there are different kinds of drinks. And on the said chest stand all of the vessels of the Lord with which he is supplied with drink. And from that large one comes the wine, or from the two small ones the drinks which are in lesser ones. The wine or the dear drink which may be there is drawn out of those four small ones and great golden vessels, very beautiful, which are called lacquered bowls are filled with it which are indeed such that they hold so much wine or other drink that eight men or ten would have enough of it. After 32 years in charge of China, Kublai Khan had reached the age of 76 and was beginning to show his age. Although Marco remained a favorite of the Khan and thus protected, there had to have been plenty of individuals around him who hated the fact that an outsider had achieved such a prestigious place within the Chinese court. In such a situation, it is always good to get out while the getting is good. Although he didn't face internal challenges, the Khan's invasion of Japan had also recently decimated his kingdom. The story of his failed invasion is one of the most unlikely stories in history as the Khan had amassed the second largest fleet in world history, only behind D-Day, in order to bring the Japanese to heel. 
the assembled armed forces were so large that they required two separate launching points, one from Korea and the other from southern China. Although Napoleon quipped God is often on the side of the larger army, such forces require detailed planning and preparation to avoid disaster. In this instance, the southern fleet didn't launch on time, and when it did finally hit the seas, was delayed by contrary winds. Meanwhile, the Korean portion of the army landed in Japan, but without their expected reinforcements were forced to retreat to an island, where it began to immediately suffer due to a lack of supplies. The original launching date had been designed with the weather in mind, as August is the peak season for typhoon and tsunami activity throughout the Pacific Ring of Fire. The continuous delays meant that they had missed their window to safely cross the East China Sea, and on August 15th, the first typhoon of the season emerged exactly at the moment that the southern Chinese portion of the fleet had finally reached the open ocean. 50,000 men are believed to have died at sea. Mann informs us that it was a catastrophe never matched in scale on a single day at sea before or since, and never on land either until the atomic bomb destroyed Hiroshima, killing 75,000 in a single blow in 1945. The campaign was an unmitigated disaster, with 15,000 of the northern fleet also lost, and more than 1,500 Mongols taken into slavery. Only three survivors returned at the behest of the Japanese shoguns to ensure that Kublai Khan knew that the Shinto Kami protected their land. A year after the disastrous campaign, the Khan faced an internal coup led by a Buddhist monk who publicly claimed to have been a magician. Mann describes the attempted overthrow as a lunatic scheme, which involved a crowd of 100 or so who turned up at the city gates, claiming to be the entourage accompanying the heir apparent, who they would say had suddenly decided to return to Beijing for a religious ceremony. The scheme relied upon the fact that it would be nighttime, too dark for a quick check of who these people were. The idea was that Ahmed, the finance minister, galvanized by the approach of the one man he feared other than the emperor himself, would lead the way out to greet them. And that would be the moment to strike. This was to be the signal for a general uprising in which the Chinese would massacre all the men with beards, i.e. the foreigners. It didn't go to plan. The guards stopped the fake entourage, but were dispatched in the ensuing scuffle by the rebels, and thus, at about 10 p.m., they made their way to the prince's palace, where they knocked out the Khan's chief financier's brains with a single blow from a brass club. By this point, the guards had become alerted to the nefarious scheme, and the coup's leaders were quickly rounded up and beheaded. Still, Kublai's finance minister, the man who had always found the money to enable the Khan's wars, was now dead. Oddly, the main effect of the uprising was a wholly unintended one. A deeper look into the dead man's affairs revealed the presence of rampant corruption. Once his subterfuge had been uncovered, 
the emperor ordered the arrest of all of the man's associates and reversed the minister's previous actions. Then, upon further investigation, the Khan disturbingly discovered a number of tanned human skins. To exorcise the demons, Kublai ordered the man's tomb opened so that his corpse could then be beheaded in public. The final act in the peculiar performance saw the minister's remains thrown outside of Beijing's north gate so that it could be consumed by dogs. The combination of the Khan's health and age, along with fears of subsequent violent reprisals beneath the next ruler, had to have terrified the visiting Venetians. But they didn't really seem to feel comfortable to just exit stage left, suggesting that Marco wasn't necessarily free of the lifetime service offer that his father had hastily made upon their arrival 17 years earlier. Marco Polo depicts his father as the central impetus, informing us that one day, seeing that the great Khan was very cheerful, he took the occasion to beg him on his knees in the name of all three, leave to depart to their home. Man tells us that the request upset the old man, who asked, Why do you wish to go die on the way? Tell me. If you have need of gold, I will give you much more of it than you have at home and likewise every other thing for which you shall ask. O Lord, replied Niccolo, that which I say is not for want of gold, but it is because in my land I have a wife. This is the first we've heard of a new wife, the historian writes, reminding us that wife number one, Marco's mother, had died during their first journey. Had he married again before returning to China? Not likely, because on the final return home he did marry again which would have meant that this second wife would also have died during his long absence. Her existence is a mute point, however, as the great Khan steadfastly refused, stating that on no condition in the world am I willing that you depart from my realm, but I am well content that you go about it where you please. This tidbit casts our story's main character in a slightly different light. There is no indication anywhere in his biographical work where he had appeared reluctant to carry out the Khan's assignments, nor were those tasks unpleasant or immoral. While Marco assuredly gained prestige and privilege from his position, the Venetians' inability to quit represents a form of enslavement. And if you believe that I'm overextending myself with that terminology, I'll point to you to the Kafala system which the world largely discovered via the recent World Cup in Qatar. That system enables indentured servitude, matching migrants to available jobs throughout the Middle East. In theory, the system helps to balance supply and demand. The reality is far different, however, as the workers are obligated to hand over their passport to their new employers. Only upon completion of their repayment can they exit the country. A dishonest employer can tack on added fees, overwork them, and house them in inhumane conditions. Qatar's reliance upon workers trapped within the kafala system led to numerous human rights groups boycotting the World Cup, refusing to support a nation that actively supported what they had deemed as modern slavery. 
Marco's enslavement therefore requires us to look back at Niccolo. The father whom, upon failing to return with the 100 requested priests, had simply presented his son as the emperor's man. Of course, we know that Marco Polo returned to Venice in order to tell his extraordinary story. The Venetians' escape came soon after their request had been rejected. Continuing their work for the Khan presented an opportunity for them to escort a Chinese princess to marry another grandson of Genghis Ahmad, the ruler of Mongol Persia. Marco remembers the princess by the name of Kochichin, claiming that the maiden was 17 at the time of her summons. Man teaches us that the need to deliver the princess halfway around the world, Marco's arrival from a previous task, his traveling experience, the polo's request to leave, the completion of the Grand Canal, everything conspired to plant an idea in the heads of the Persian ambassadors. They could travel down the canal to Hangzhou, proceed to Quanzhou, and leave from there by sea with the polos, particularly Marco as their guide. Here was a suggestion that Kublai could not refuse. Thinking that it was his idea, the emperor allowed the party to depart, but forced upon them the condition that they would return to him when they could. The great Khan once again handed them gold piazzas to ensure their safe travel throughout his kingdom, and Marco's father and uncle, reverting back to their persona as elite traders, quickly exchanged their accumulated Chinese wealth for emeralds and other jewels, which would be easier to transport. The delegation sailed down the Grand Canal early in 1291 and boarded 13 ships, each double the size of those the Christopher Columbus would sail across the Atlantic in 1492. An even larger indictment on the state of the European shipbuilding industry was the fact that none of their vessels would reach the size or complexity of the ones that Marco Polo traveled home on for another five centuries. The adventure went south almost immediately. While sailing, the Persian employer was murdered after falling into a coma, rendering the entire bridal mission irrelevant. But the Polos, sensing that this might be their lone opportunity to return home, pushed onward to deliver the distraught princess to the corpse of her fiancé. Again, disaster struck as they were stymied in Sumatra, Indonesia, for five months, leading Marco to once again put on his amateur anthropology hat, detailing for us the discovery of the previously mentioned ugly brute of a unicorn. Of course, we know that Marco was describing the Sumatran black rhino. He also spent these months investigating rumors of the natives cannibalizing tiny men, or pygmies, declaring the stories as rubbish, before then repeating the obvious lie of wild men with tails that were of the thickness of dogs, as well as a group of people known as the Andaman, whom he describes as no better than wild beasts with the heads of dogs and teeth and eyes likewise, in the face just like big mastiff dogs. They are a most cruel generation and eat everybody that they can catch if not of their own race, 
They live on flesh and rice and milk. Determined as ever, the Polos pushed on, and heads full of fantasy finally arrived at their destination along the Strait of Hormuz in 1291. The voyage to the Middle East had lasted slightly less than two years. With the princess's engagement having been put off due to the fact that her fiancé had perished years earlier, the emperor's men consulted Islamic law and found it to be perfectly legitimate for her to marry the deceased man's son. Thus, she managed to become queen over the Persian portion of the now-divided Mongolian Empire. Never eager to rush home, the Polos would remain in the area for the next nine months re-establishing their land legs after so long at sea. Their time spent in this part of the world was evidently pleasant, as the princess was said to have wept at their departure, while her husband, the newly crowned Ilkhan, issued them four new piazzas, granting them access to fresh mounts and provisions. This protection was sufficient to get them as far as the Black Sea, the area where the Polos on their first expedition decades earlier had experienced unexpected violence at the hands of rival European merchants. The next portion of their journey saw them crossing a breakaway autonomous province within Byzantine territory. The Khan's protection didn't extend into this foreign realm, and the Venetians were each shaken down for the modern-day equivalent of $35,000. The elder Polo's foresight regarding the honor of Europeans came in handy here, as they had wisely taken the additional step of sewing all of their precious jewels into the lining of their clothing, presenting themselves as relatively poor, wayward travelers. They also timed their exit extremely well, not only had Kublai Khan passed away in 1294, but civil war had broken out across the Persian lands. But these were no longer their problems. Their focus was in restoring their names in a land that had long since forgotten them. Arriving home in 1296, the Polos had to reintroduce themselves to Venetian society as they had been gone for 25 consecutive years. Here is how Marco's ghostwriter describes their homecoming in The Travels. And when they got there, those three gentlemen who had been so many years absent from their native city were recognized by none of their kinsfolk, who were under the firm belief that they had all been dead for many a year past, as indeed had been reported. Through the long duration and the hardships of their journeys and through the many worries and anxieties that they had undergone, they were quite changed in aspect and had got a certain indescribable smack of the Tatar, both in air and accent, having indeed all but forgotten their native tongue. Their clothes, too, were coarse and shabby and of Tatar cut. They proceeded on their arrival to their house in the city, a very lofty and handsome palazzo. Going there, they found it occupied by some of their relatives, and they had the greatest difficulty in making the latter understand who they should be. 
for these good people seemed them to be in the consonants so unlike what they used to be, and in dress so shabby, flatly refused to believe that they were those very gentlemen of the house Polo, who they had been looking upon for so many years as among the dead. So these three gentlemen devised a scheme by which they should at once bring about their recognition by their relatives and secure the honorable notice of the whole city. And this was it. They invited a number of their kindred to an entertainment, which they took care to have prepared with great state and splendor in that house of theirs. And when the hour arrived for the sitting down to table, they came forth of their chamber all three clothed in crimson satin, which during the meal were exchanged for other crimson clothes, first of damask, then of velvet, each set of suits being divided among the servants to the amazement of the guests. But when the cloth had been drawn and all of the servants had been ordered to retire from the dining hall, Monsieur Marco, as the youngest of the three, rose from the table, and going into another chamber brought forth the three shabby dresses of coarse stuff, which they had worn when they first arrived. Straight away they took sharp knives and began to rip up some of the seams and welts and to take out of them jewels of the greatest value and vast quantities, such as rubies, sapphires, diamonds, and emeralds, which had all been stitched up in those dresses in so artful a fashion that nobody could have suspected the fact. Now this exhibition of such a huge treasure of jewels and precious stones all tumbled out upon the table, threw the guests into fresh amazement, insomuch that they seemed quite bewildered and dumbfounded, and now they recognized that in spite of all former doubts, these were in truth those honored and worthy gentlemen of the house Polo that they claimed to be. And so all paid them the greatest honor and reverence. And when the story got wind in Venice, straight away the whole city, gentle and simple, flocked to the house to embrace them, and to make much of them with every conceivable demonstration of affection and respect. While money can't buy you happiness, it appears as though it can buy you respectability. In our final episode of this series, we will examine what life was like for the Polos as they settled into the life of respectable citizens of Venice, before detailing the factors that resulted in Marco publishing one of the most famous books in history, establishing his enduring legacy. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you'd like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.